welcome to Rising Tide, a podcast for career-driven women to find inspiration, find courage, and find their voice. Today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Fran Hurley. We all have so much to learn from each other. So for me, it's never about top-down learning. It's about this horizontal learning where if we can learn from one another, that bakes the best cake and will create the tastiest cake. She is an early education specialist that over the course of her career, she has been a teacher, mentor and coach, program designer and evaluator, professor of education, management consultant, and an award-winning researcher and education-focused filmmaker. If that's not impressive enough, she holds five degrees, including a master's and doctoral degree from Harvard University in human development. Needless to say, Dr. Fran is unbelievably accomplished. Her work has spanned across the globe to some of the most remote parts of the world. And on today's episode, we really get to not only hear about her experience, but she shares a couple of really big lessons that she has learned throughout her work. I'll give you a little flavor of some themes to be listening for. The first is one of the things that has served her well is that she has looked for the learning in every situation. She approaches new situations with a learner mindset, and it's been incredibly valuable. Another theme to keep your ears perked for is this concept that we are more alike than we are different. And this comes up again and again, whether she's talking about her work in early childhood education and literacy, or simply sharing her transition to trying to put her work more in the spotlight now, as opposed to being in her comfort zone of putting others in the spotlight. This is a fun, unique episode. It was such a gift to have this time with Dr. Hurley, and I hope you enjoy this one. Welcome to Rising Tide, Dr. Fran. Thank you so much. It's absolutely my privilege to be here, Margaret. Oh, I am so excited. I've been, we connected a couple of weeks ago in preparation for this, and I have been looking forward to this time and getting to have this conversation with you because I don't get to spend a lot of time with somebody of your background and your accomplishments and the global scope of the work that you're doing. And so I'm really, really genuinely as somebody who is technically interviewing, but also actively listening, excited to get to have this conversation and get to learn from all the incredible things that you have done up until this point in your career. Well, you know, you're all about finding ways to help women be courageous and believe that they are just capable and ready to get out there and do it. So not only do I want to add my experience and hope that that might help somebody out there, but this is also about my empowerment. So thank you. Thank you. Yes. Oh, well, you know, I've been bouncing around like, where do we start? Because there is such a rich history here. And what I thought might be a good starting place is getting into early on in your career and your education, you honed in on education as a place where you wanted to 
invest your time, build your expertise. And I wanted to maybe start there to understand what was it that really drew you into education as an area that you wanted to specialize? Yeah, so I think it goes back to being a swimming instructor. As, <laughs> as, as small as that sounds, So I was a competitive swimmer and that led to becoming a swimming instructor. And I just really, really, really loved swimming instruction. And, you know, schools would bring in this, you know, 25 kids for the spring and I would have a chance to have a small group. And it was just truly a wonderful experience. I felt like I had a little tiny bit of a gift in terms of taking what I knew and offering these to like fifth grade children. And I thought, gosh, there's something here. So as I started to narrow in on, you know, what I would do post-college, education just really, really came to me. Mm. And that was really really to start. So you said something really interesting there. And I think this is what's really neat is that, you know, for people listening, Dr. Fran is from Canada. And so I'm based in the US and you said after college, this started to come to you, which is a really interesting concept because I know for me personally, and and people I talk to, one of the challenges is this almost expectation that you go to college to figure out what you're going to do. So I'm, I'm intrigued by that comment of, you started to come to it after college. Will you tell us more about that? Yeah, so college is, the system is a little bit different in Canada and England. So it's not unusual to get two undergraduate degrees at the college level. So I had done a first degree in science and it was during that time that I was starting to teach swimming. And then I got to do a second undergraduate degree, what was called a Bachelor of Education after. So it meant you had one first degree, and now you were going to go and get a second degree. In the United States, you would that would be considered a Master's of Education degree. So you get a first degree, and then you do a Master's degree in Education. So it's just a, the nomenclature is just a little bit different, country by country, I guess. So yeah, yeah. So during I should have said during my first degree, my first undergraduate degree, teaching swimming, really loved it, and made me think about doing the second undergraduate degree in education. Yes. Thank you for explaining that. Cause I think it's, it's helpful if you're not familiar with the education systems in Canada or in England. So thank you for, cause that that's extremely helpful. And then you actually did, even though the secondary was kind of the equivalent of a master's program in the U S you ended up going on to then get your, your master's at the university of Calgary, master's of education. So um, I taught for a couple of years, and I I would love to talk about this because it set me up for everything I did thereafter. Mm. So in my first year teaching, I went to the most remote part of Canada. (laughs) So I had grown up in Canada, but to a mom and dad who were not born in Canada. My mom was born in India. My dad was born in England. And they actually met 
on the far east side, so remote you can't even imagine. They were both <laughs> wanderers exploring the world. They met in this remote part of Canada, and then they stayed and had a, a family. So growing up, we were definitely of the community. But when, you know, my friends would go to visit their grandmothers, they would go to an even more remote part of Canada and visit and, you know, be with their families. We would go to England, which was, you know, far removed from where I was growing up. So I decided that when I started teaching, I was going to go to one of these very remote little places. So I went to a place called Fogo Island. And believe it or not, now it's the most trendy place in the world. It's, you know, if you're the adventurer of all adventurers and you have all kinds of money to spend, you know, you'll find your way to this little island off the east coast of Canada. But when I was there, you know, children didn't have bathrooms at home. It was a real mixed socioeconomically place. But I'm going to tell you, I learned so much from the other teachers and so much from my students. You know, it was really, really a wonderful experience. So I had this idea that, you know, I was going to educate myself more and then I was going to help children who didn't have the same advantages that I did. But before I was going to do that, I needed to educate myself a whole lot more. So that was like the initial teaching stuff. So now, how did you even find Fogo Island? I mean, I, I would imagine, I'm, I'm trying to comprehend how you even found it, found a job. I mean, <laughs> how did that even come to be? <laughs> well, technically, it was not that far from where I grew up. Okay. So I went to the school board where I grew up and then geographically. So I grew up in this little place called Gander and people know Gander now because of 9-11. During 9-11, none of the planes that were coming to the U.S. could actually land in the U.S., and there's a little tiny international airport there. Many, many of the planes came to Gander. Long story short, the people of Gander, the wonderful people of Gander, made it possible for these, I don't know, was it hundreds, was it thousands of people to come to this tiny town during this worldwide emergency and gave everybody a place to sleep, to eat, and to be welcomed during this traumatic time. And then there was, believe it or not, this huge musical that mm -hmm. was like an award-winning musical on Broadway that was made about that situation. It was called Come From Away. And if your listeners ever get a chance to see it, it's the most beautiful thing you'll ever see. We went... To my sisters and I went to see the musical and we were paraded around as rock stars Aww. because we were from this little town. So anyway, this little town of Gander, you go to Gander, then you drive to the end of the world about an hour and a half on roads that eventually become dirt roads. <laughs> and then you take a ferry for another hour 
and you reach this little place called Fogo Island. Oh my God. So as remote as you can get, your listeners will have to look it up. It's a very beautiful place. But like I said, years ago, the remoteness, you know, many different income levels in terms of the kids and all the advantages and disadvantages that come along with that. I learned a lot and it directed where I was going to go thereafter. Yeah. Oh gosh. Wow. So let's talk about that because, you know, you spent two years there and then it really helped as you went back for additional education. What did you take away from that experience that informed kind of this next stage of Mm. your, of your education and your development? Yeah. So I was just there for one year and then I, I moved to another school for the second year. But what did I take away from that? Just the goodness of people. Mm. Not that I needed to know more about the goodness of people, but gosh, the teachers were just so good to me. I saw them, how they managed these huge classes of children. The kids and their parents were amazing. You know, just pure goodness is what I would say. Many of the families were fisher people. And so they worked in the fishing industry as either fisher people or in the processing plants. And that work is hard. I mean, you get up at three in the morning, you're fishing before the sun comes up. Really, really hard work. And then on the side of the hard work was this culture that was about music and amazing food and gardens and homemade booze, may I say. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just everything to make life as good as it could be. So it just, it was just a wonderful place to spend a year. You know, there were things I missed during that time, of course, like friends and family, although I met, I made many friends while I was there, but just an amazing, amazing place to get really centered on what matters. Right, right. I mean, it's just such an incredible experience. And I think it's a testament to I mean, even, even having grown up, you know, in a more remote part of Canada, probably that took a lot of courage to go somewhere you'd never been before in a very remote part of the world away from people that you knew and loved you. That's a really big deal. So I think we're getting a flavor for some of your, your courage and your confidence as a person that, you know, you were, you were willing to do that. So this kind of plays into one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about. And you can pull me back if I skip, I I don't intend to skip over your master's at Calgary, but when you were looking at furthering your education and really starting to hone in on, you know, early education and literacy for, you know, for young children, you were very intentional about picking only two schools that you applied to when you did this process. And I, I wanted to maybe tap into this a little bit because you didn't just apply to any two schools. You applied to Harvard and Berkeley and that was it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, and I, I don't mean that to sound highfalutin in any way or overconfident. I mean, I had done this, this first master's degree 
And I had taken my experience in a remote part of Canada and had really focused on, I wanted to know more about family literacy. Mm. So what is it about families that help our children to get on that track to become successful academically? What is it that holds us back? And so during that time, that first master's degree, I did a really extensive, it took me years to complete master's thesis that looked at early literacy and that issue of families. And I was lucky enough or fortunate enough, I don't know how to say that, but the research won a big award. And so that opened up the world for me in terms of a doctoral program and in terms of who would want to take me on. And so I knew that. And I also knew who I wanted to study with. And there was a set of researchers at Harvard that I was very interested in and like their companion researchers on the West Coast. So kind of East and West Coast. And both I was lucky enough to be accepted. And I thought through, you know, just all the things you have to think through. At the time, my mom was getting a little bit older. And so it was a good idea to be closer to her. And that's what helped me make the final decision about being in the Boston, Cambridge area instead of being in the California area. But yeah, I think, and maybe this is a woman's thing that we want to get into, but I think, and it's a woman and a man's issue, but I think men are traditionally a little bit better, you know, in years gone by about like saying, okay, this is what I want. These are the pros and cons. Let me be super mindful about this. And then I've got the confidence to go for it. Mm. That's definitely was my process. And I want every woman who listens to your podcast, Margaret, to say the world is our oysters. We all have tremendous gifts. And we want to be mindful about how we're going to give those gifts to the world. Now, I did this through an academic path. Okay, one of the things that I know right now that there are many paths that we can go that are not traditionally through the university system. Everything we want to learn about is now online in terms of content, in terms of how to, in terms of reaching out and finding people who you can give value to and then in response they can mentor you in different ways it's all that and you know like i said a more traditional way in my field of education is to go the academic route study get experience study get experience study get experience and then you map those two things together to become an expert in a very tiny field. As I said, it's not the only way to do it right now. The world is much less exclusive. The internet has opened up opportunities for all of us. 
And I feel like I'm just scratching the surface with what the internet can offer me. There are many, many smarter people out there than me that are figuring it out and, you know, just making it work. Right. Well, and it's, it's funny. My ears always kind of prickle up when I hear somebody use the word lucky, because I think this plays really interesting into your experience of not only opportunity that you more or less created for yourself. And then to your point, you know, being very intentional and having the confidence mm. to go for what you wanted. And I, you know, maybe going back, you know, cause you mentioned your master's thesis, which again, in our conversation, you helped me understand it's very similar to a doctorate thesis that you you do. So like the work and the intensive nature of it, if you could look at that and look at, you know, what was it that allowed it to attract the attention to win an award? Was there anything that you look at that you see that maybe you did or, or helped it stand out so that it kind of puts you on another, another level to now grow off of? Yeah, yeah. So I guess when I say lucky, what I really mean is privileged. Mm. I had a mom and dad who were very educated, very smart in traditional ways. They took that and their first line was always that really, I guess this may sound cliche, we're all created equal. But some of us have advantages that we need to look at and then look at those advantages as gifts and think about ways to use those advantages to better humanity. Mm. And that sounds big and lofty, but it was their message. Mm. I mean, they were an interracial couple at a time when, I don't know, it just wasn't a thing. I mean, they got married in the 50s. And we grew up in an entirely white environment. So we were kind of like a splash of color. <laughs> strangely, strangely, Margaret, they didn't talk about power and privilege and color as we might with our children today. Instead, it was this, we always got this strong message of, well, first of all, they told beautiful, beautiful, beautiful stories of them growing up in different countries. So my mom would tell these beautiful stories of growing up in India, and my dad would do the same about, about England. We just had these amazing stories that, you know, it was not about poverty in India. It was not about just all the things that we know to be true, those things were integrated into stories, but the stories were just beautiful. They were just beautiful. And so, you know, they set this pathway for us that we always wanted to do our best. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about, you know, one person is better than another, but it was like, use your gifts in a way that makes sense for you. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's really interesting how you explain that and how, you know, I think it's a really good call out of 
sometimes what can look and appear as luck, privilege can play into that. And to your point of, you know, you grew up in a very unique household and some of what was imprinted on you at a very young age is very advanced as far as how you think about your impact in the greater world and how to bring your gifts and use them for good. And, and then to your point, I mean, just having parents that were very well-educated, very intellectual, right. Those are gifts that were passed on to you that again, probably allowed, you know, you, you excelled in school and in in an academic arena. And I would imagine your excellence there was one of the many things that made your research stand out. So yes, I think it's a really helpful understanding of, you know, how you see luck and privilege in ways can be connected to one another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I want to add to that, just this strong piece you know, the Gates Foundation talks about how every person has equal worth. Mm-hmm. And it's just so true. It's something that we all have to understand. Every person is equal worth. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to look for the learning in every single situation, because we all have so much to learn from each other. So for me, it's never about top-down learning. It's about this, I don't know, this horizontal learning, where if we can learn from one another, that bakes the best cake, and we'll create the tastiest cake, is what I'm going to say. Yes, yes. And I think there's so much to that. We all, Every person has equal worth, and we will get into it as we start to talk about what you're working on today of like, we are more alike than we are different. And there's, there's so much beauty in that. Yeah. You've mentioned this a couple of times now, and I want to kind of take a moment and spend a few minutes with it, which is, you know, you mentioned your parents were an interracial couple in the 1950s, which is absolutely not common in that time. And they're, I'm sure, you know, even though they maybe didn't always talk about it that there was still I'm sure a lot that came with it especially living in a predominantly if not exclusively white community and so I'm curious for you as far as that background you know how that has kind of impacted your your sense of belonging right of like where your place is in the world because of growing up where again in some environments that may not be as big of a deal where in others the fact that it's a mixed race couple could be very challenging and you're judged Mm -hmm. purely off of that and nothing else well I think growing gosh it's so complicated I don't know if we have time but you know in most ways we just didn't talk about it and Mm -hmm. I thought of my mother as this just beauty this absolutely glamorous lady who also was She had a bunch of nursing degrees, and I know that the community really valued everything that she did and knew. As a matter of fact, when I go back to that small community, when my mom was still alive, we would walk down the street and people would throw their arms around her. Mm -hmm. And she would know to say, I mean, 30 years later, she would say, how is the baby? Mm -hmm. And the woman would start to talk 
and say, oh, your mom was with me when such and such and something wasn't going right. And she knew exactly what to do. And so that's who she was in the community. And my dad was just this fabulously dressed English man. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's how I viewed them both. This is all in hindsight that I view the race part of it. And sure. that's not to say that everything was perfect, but from a race point of view, and I think other members of my family would possibly tell a very different story. But for me, it was when I finally moved to the United States and to Cambridge particularly mm-hmm. that I took this deep breath and I thought, wow, I am now comfortable. I'm in a very multicultural environment. I have people around me from every part of the world. And I didn't understand my discomfort until I felt my comfort. And that really happened to me, grad school in Cambridge. That is so powerful what you just said. You know, for you, it was around race, but that you didn't understand your discomfort until you experienced comfort. And I think, Uh isn't that so true of life of when you're, you don't maybe understand the situations that you're in, or even the, the angst that you may feel until you experience another way, another way of being, and you get exposure that there are alternative, there's just alternative experiences that can be had. I just, I think that's so profound that you were able to find that and then also make sense of some of your, your past of feelings that you, you had and and maybe couldn't fully understand yet. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I think you just pulled that out of me, Margaret. (laughs) I'm not sure I had that understanding before this conversation. So thank you. You're welcome. Well, I, I just think that's really incredible. So maybe let's, since we're in Harvard, now and we just talked about yep. you know, that so that was the choice of school that you went to and both have a master's and doctor of education from Harvard master's focused on cognitive and symbolic development and then your doctorate was focused on human development and psychology but tell us about i mean you you did some tremendous work again in your time at Harvard but will you tell us a little bit about your time and what you were working on and and really what you were focusing your expertise really starting to narrow it into yeah yeah well really more of the same so we're on our fourth and fifth degrees there and getting more deeply into understanding all aspects of literacy And people often ask me, so why literacy? And for me, it is a basic human rights issue. And so if we can understand literacy and literacy learning in the context of other aspects of human development, so we kind of break human development up into physical development social development, emotional development, and then we can start to think about cognitive development, cognitive and language development, we'll say, and those areas include literacy. So if we can place literacy learning in the context of everything else, Mm. it's like the wraparound. What do children need 
from the time they're conceived until they're something like, I don't know, five to eight years old. And so the issues that are big right now in education is bringing together all those pieces. And so I built this grounding while I was doing those two degrees. Let's talk about that because you, what you built is incredible and you actually got to put it into work and like after you receive your doctorate but will you tell us a little bit more and maybe maybe uh in layman's terms for anyone that is not in the academic realm but would love for you to tell us about what you developed yeah yeah so I guess we can talk about two things one was my time in Boston and the Boston mm-hmm. Public Schools. And then we can talk about the more international work, I guess. And they're one and the same, they're no different. And they're in every way deeply connected mm-hmm. to that first year teaching on Fogel Island and what I observed and started to think about and was uh, really taught about by other teachers and certainly the families that I met during that time. So, After my doctorate, instead of going back to university teaching, which is what I had been doing before that, I met this incredible woman. And she said to me, why don't you come with me? And we've got this program. I can pay you. Why don't you come and we'll figure out some of the things you're interested in, in some of the neighborhoods in Boston. So I started what became six years in the Boston Public Schools. And in this very, very tiny school, just 200 children from kindergarten to grade five, when I started there, it was in terms of socioeconomics, it was the poorest school, and it was also one of the poorest performing schools. The population of the children was this incredible, Incredible, incredible community, the Cape Verdean community, mm-hmm. which is Cape Verde is on the is a part of Africa. And the population, the Cape Verdean population in Boston is quite large. And so most of the children, I would say maybe 90% of the children were Cape Verdean immigrants. And so half the teachers were Cape Verdean. Half the teachers were not Cape Verdean. Many of the Cape Verdean teachers had been there for some period of time. And that was actually true of the non-Cape Verdean teachers as well. And so they welcomed me into the school as a person who had some good experience in schools and also had this good experience around literacy learning. Well, what we did was we created teams and each team focused on a certain age group and I did an awful lot of listening like so much listening and I had my journal and I would just ask a question and I'd say is that a good question for me to ask they would say yes or no (laughs) and then they would they would talk and I would just take notes and notes and notes and notes. And then I would come back to them and I would say, you know, ladies, this is what I heard. 
am I getting the picture right here on this particular topic? They would say yes or no, and then they would give me more information. And they were just bursting with their expertise. Mm. And so for the first month in this special position that had been created for me, I listened, I tried to learn, I tried to put it all together, I pull out. And then after a few weeks, I said, okay, I have a couple of ideas about things we can do. Can I share them with you? And then you tell me what you think. And the teachers were not shy. They were very assertive. They were like, this sounds good. I'm not sure about this. And this is why. And so we started to pilot or field test small interventions. And what it looked like was we started with grades three and four, and we said, who are the kids that need the greatest support? Let's look at all the data we can, and then let's think about how these children can be best supported. And so together we worked out a model for grade three, we worked out a model for grade four. At the end of the year and at the end of this funding cycle, the teachers went to the principal and said, okay, we need Dr. Hurley back. Like, what do we (laughs) need to do to figure out a way to finance this for another year? And so she said, okay, let me think, let me think. And then they were able to finance me for another year and we were able to expand a little bit. So that was kind of how it started. It was absolutely a group effort that utilized me as a sounding board to really pull out, give the time for the teachers to just express their amazing expertise. And so we needed a way for the teachers to have a little bit of time in the day to work with me. So there needed to be money to cover the teacher's classes. Mm -hmm. So we figured out all those pieces. And by the end of the second year, we were doing kindergarten, I think, grade three, grade four, grade five, and making some really nice student games. So the students were just doing better. We were team teaching together. The teachers were working very, very closely together, sharing their expertise with each other and with me. We were doing some specialized work where I did some specialized, what we call pullout training. And the model was just working really well. And, you know, teachers want to be happy. They want to give their, and they do give their, very best to kids. And I think a big part of this model was allowing teachers or not allowing, that's totally the wrong word, encouraging teachers to really say, claim their expertise and say, this is what I do really, really well. And I need more time to do this. And also saying, you know what, these are the things you can help me with. And so Yeah, it was good. It was really, really good. Within just a couple of years, we made such gains as a school that we were placed on this. I don't know what the name of the list was, 
but I'll call it a Commonwealth bang for buck list where the <laughs> Commonwealth of Massachusetts looked at all the school data and they listed 10 schools in Massachusetts that if you wanted your child to make the biggest gains in a year, Mm. you would send your child to one of these 10 schools. Now, that did not mean that we were at the top of the achievement levels. It was a relative gain. So where a child came in, where a child was at the end of the year, among the top 10 schools in the Commonwealth. So that was that was that experience. I stayed for, you know, we were together for six years. And that was such a formative experience for me. Again, I learned more than anybody else during that time. You know, I am so enamored with how you approach that situation. Because here you are, somebody with five degrees, you are a award-winning research. You have, you know, studied at at least in the U.S. What's considered one of the the top schools in the country, and you go into a school and you spent your first month asking questions. And I was, it's interesting because I was going to ask you how did you win them over, and you gave me that answer as you explained it of. You didn't just come, you could have your credentials and your expertise. You you could have easily come in and started doing things. But instead, I think it, again, we get such a sense for your brilliance of knowing that in order to be effective, you would have to win their trust. And in order to do that, you had to understand their world and involve them in the process. And so much so that after the first year, they fought to bring you back. If that's not a testament of how you approach winning people over and going into unfamiliar territory, I think that's really powerful what you shared. See, Margaret, I see it a different way. Mm -hmm. I see everything you said as true, like it's factually true. (laughs) But I also believe deep in my soul that this group of amazing, amazing educators had so much to teach me. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the right way to approach it in my mind, it wasn't like winning them over or anything like that. It was seriously learning from them. And, and it's not a false humility. It's about knowing deep in my soul that I had so much to learn from these people and the way that I was going to succeed was through creating a pathway for me to learn. Right. I, well, I think it's such a great mindset to go in. And again, so like, you know, what's interesting is like, it is such a different world than the world that I've come from, which is, you know, corporate software world but I think about coming in as a leader into an organization with an established team with leaders that are overseeing the teams. It's very similar in drawing parallels of kind of coming in with this mindset of like, 
I can learn, you know, I can learn from this uh-huh. group that's here and it going in with that mindset, then how you approach it is very different than if you come in with, you know, I'm here to have the answers and I'm going to help yeah, yeah, you yeah. to the promise. So I think, you know, I think it's a really powerful mindset for, you know, again, for anyone, regardless of career path that you're on of when you, when you walk into a new situation, you take on a new, a new role, especially in leadership of, going in with a mindset of learning and understanding and what, you know, they have value. How can I best understand what they bring to the table? I mean, what a powerful, powerful way to go into a new environment. So I think that's really, it's very wise. Thank you. Thank you. So you spent six years there. So now what did you do once you left uh, working in, in Roxbury? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I never left the university environment. Mm-hmm. I had been a young professor. We kind of skipped over that part, and that's good. Lots <laughs> of learning there, all that kind of good stuff. So, you know, while I was a literacy specialist in the Boston Public Schools, I took all my, not free time, but vacations, and I did university related things. So I taught summer school to graduates I went to the far north of Canada and taught in a place called the Northwest Territories again to graduate students I did a lot of oh and one summer I took the teachers to Cape Verde so I wrote a grant Mm. and for part of part of the summer we actually went to Cape Verde so that the teachers could really understand more about where our wonderful families had had come from. And that's another wonderful story. It was the students, it was the children's grandparents who hosted Mm -hmm. us in Cape Verde. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I kept my university life going because really I thought I would be in Roxbury for one year, for two years, for three years. After that, or during that time, I was offered a lot of different consulting opportunities. And so I did little pieces as I was working in Roxbury. And then I realized that although I went back to the university system for a couple of years to teach, what I really, really, really loved was consulting. Mm. And so I became director of research and evaluation at a number of different firms, a firm in New York, a firm here in Massachusetts, did wonderful, wonderful research and evaluation work, also started doing some film work, which became really important to me. And then I realized what I really wanted to do, I wanted to take kind of my three parts of the triangle, one being teaching, the second part of the triangle being research, and the third part of the triangle being film. And I wanted to take those three parts of the triangle and I wanted to do international work. And I also wanted to explore the part of the world that my mom came from. So over the last number of years, I've been consulting to the World Bank and to big international organizations like UNICEF. 
and I have been consulting in the area of early childhood development and helping just taking all my experience and going into different countries and helping with different projects that need my kind of expertise. I've taken exactly the same mindset as we talked about, about moving into Boston and working with incredible experts. It doesn't matter where you go. There are incredible experts in every field and we have so much to do to learn from one another. And so that's where I am right now, putting in in exactly the same way I did in Roxbury, being, I think some people call this a weaver, like your tendency is to weave together other people's expertise. So Mm. kind of sit in the background, bring the right people together, maybe ask some good questions, have a certain credibility that I built over time, but then getting the right people in the right room together so they can bring their expertise and just do good things for kids and families. So that's where I am right now. Oh, I mean, it's just so neat. And I am so excited because you just gave me a new word to add to my vocabulary of weaver. I've never heard that before. (laughs) Somebody has a system for it, Margaret. I don't remember what the system is, but like, are you with this? Are you with that? Are you with the other? And I must have heard a podcast about it. And I said, oh yeah, that's me. I'm a weaver. Yes. How fascinating. Well, I, I love it because as you were describing the weaver, you know, I think a not so eloquent way I've heard it described is like, you're a generalist. (laughs) And it's this idea of your knowledge spans a variety of areas and you are, you know, skilled at partnering with and working with and bringing together uh, experts in there. So I I much prefer weaver because I love that it it also represents kind of that connection piece. Like this person is also a, a connector. And that that's a really important yeah, yeah, part yeah. of, of bringing about change and, and doing things meaningful is being able to connect the right people at the right time. So I love that. That's, I, gonna, <laughs> I, I wrote that down. <laughs> well, I, I will find the reference and send it to you. I would love that. I would love that. That's, that's new for me. That's new, I, but I really, I really like it. And, you know, I think for anybody that is listening, you know, that maybe isn't as familiar with World Bank, you know, I think just real quick, this is what's really powerful about it is the work that you're doing. I mean, this is, this is a, an organization that has 189 member countries. They partner with five different institutions. They focus primarily on, you know, sustainable solutions in impoverished countries, but helping, you know, to build prosperity in those countries. So, I mean, it's a really, I mean, I think for anyone listening, like I would encourage you to go look into World Bank and get like, just kind of do a little bit more research to be aware of what it is and what they do. And then, you know, I think that'll help also in the work that you're doing there. And I, again, I think it goes back to how, you mentioned how Fogo Island has really helped you both, you know, with the work that you did in Boston, but then also now what you're doing. And again, that sense of interconnectedness of we're more alike than we are different. You've been to all parts of the world at this point. And yet, you know, this area that you focus on in education and literacy and, and how it can impact development in other areas, it's consistent. 
and it's it's not it's, it's not as though it's so same. unique somewhere else. It is all the same. My brother-in-law, who actually all my siblings, all my family do similar work, and my brother-in-law said to me one time, the most important question you can ask anybody is to tell me about your mom. Mm. Mm. And whether there's a mom or not a mom, or it's still the story. I mean, you could say the same thing about your dad, right? Or Mm. tell me about your family. But the basic idea is there are these universal threads that go through humanity. And it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where you are. I'll tell you just one more little story. So I was I was hiking, doing this mountain hike, and we were we were walking along in a far, far, far remote part of the world, and the remote part of the world was not Oak Island. And so we have a guide, and we have donkeys, and I could not sit on that donkey's back. I mean, <laughs> the donkey was smaller than I am, and I'm pretty small. But anyway, so I'm walking my donkey through the mountains and all of a sudden out in the middle of nowhere, this little tiny girl just pops out of nowhere. And it was our guide's little girl. Mm. And I just thought to myself, isn't this a universal story? So we're in the middle of Africa and this little girl can see over mountains, you know, and knows the path somehow. I'm not saying she could literally see over mountains, but she knows right. the pathway her, her dad takes. And this was a little girl who just wanted her papa. Mm. And is that not a story you could find in any town about moms and dads and children? You know, humanity, right? Yes. I guess, yeah. So if I can take this little bit of accumulated knowledge that I have and take this mindset of bringing together amazing people and create, I'll call them interventions that make life better for families, then that's a good thing. And the World Bank does an amazing, amazing, amazing job of supporting countries that are less prosperous. Mm -hmm. And one piece of what they started to focus on are you know, the World Bank is mostly economists, but there's now lots of people like me. I'm a consultant to the World Bank. I'm not an employee, but now there are lots of people like me who work on these type of issues. And again, it's the wraparound service for families. I want a big shout out for UNICEF who are on the ground collaborating with organizations like World Bank to just really, really make a difference for kids and families just across the planet. So lots of good people doing good things and I get to work with some of them. Right. Yeah. I just, I, I think it's so, it's so neat. And it's just, I mean, this is, we're, I think we're getting into, and we, I mean, the whole time, but this is a lot of why I was so excited to get to have you on here is just your perspective is so special and so unique and it's really helpful you know for those of us who either don't necessarily want to pursue this but it helps us kind of understand the world around us and I I love that you know something we're, we're getting close to time and there's there's one thing 
I definitely wanted to make sure we hit on, and you shared this with me when we were prepping, and I, I thought it was really beautiful. And again, I think when we think about, you know, those common grounds, those kind of universal things that connect us, you mentioned for you, this change that you're going through of, you know, in the past kind of letting your work speak for itself and almost intentionally taking a back seat and shining a light on others where now you're being more intentional about talking about the work that you're doing and, and putting a spotlight on yourself and your work. And I wanted to talk about this real quick because that's a really big thing that is a challenge, especially again for women. And was really curious how that, you know, kind of what has changed for you that's made that to be more of a priority and something that you're more willing to do now than you perhaps were in the past. That's such a tough issue for me. I am so comfortable in the background, Mm -hmm. being the weaver, shining the spotlight on others. That's Mm -hmm. completely and totally my comfort zone. To get out of that, it takes work. But I also think at this point in time, if I'm going to continue to contribute, I have to be willing to come forward just a little bit more. And to be honest, I don't know what that means. It may mean in terms of my writing, I have written and written and written and written but 95% of what I've written has been under the guise of an organization Mm. or a government document. And so that puts your writing in a, it makes it hard to find your name. It makes you not have a written record in the way you might've, if I was a traditional academic and published under my own name. So that's one thing, the writing part. The second part is nobody finds it easy to go on a podcast Mm -hmm. or to do the kinds of things to go on an Instagram live. Nobody finds that easy. But I think it's time for me to step up and do it a little bit more because it does share this work that's it's possible for lots of people to hear about and be excited about and decide to go a non-traditional path and it's still I could never think about putting a spotlight on myself I would rather die but (laughs) I think I think I just need to put myself out there a little bit and just reframe what that means for me my career and sharing particularly with other women at this point in time right Yeah, well, I think you're getting into it, which is that reframe of like, what is the motive behind the behavior? And, you know, what you've come to is that there's, it increases people's access to the the work that you're doing, the findings that you have, the experience that you have, that can positively impact them, like the ripple effect gets so much larger simply by just making some of this writing more accessible. And so it's not so much about, look at the amazing things I've done, but rather let me share this experience with you so that it helps expose you to new ideas or new information or, you know, you know, even new career paths or alternate career paths that 
maybe speak to you that you wouldn't have otherwise known about? Thank you for reframing that for me. <laughs> I, I think it, I think it's really great. And I really appreciate your openness about it. You know, I think it's a, you know, I, I love the, even just saying like, I'm not exactly sure how I will do it, but that it's important. I think it's really, it's really great. And it's really helpful for people to be able to hear that and understand it because I, you know, I, I know this is a, it's a very common challenge and it's, it's something that, you know, most women kind of are plagued with for different reasons. And so, you know, I think the, the, the reframe, it, it all seems to be going back to the mindset too, of how you approach things, how you think about things, how you look at things can really have a positive or negative impact. So, um, well, you know, Dr. Fran, we are oh, sadly closing out on the end. And I know something that we talked about at the beginning before we hit record is in your prep work for this had a, a couple of things that as you were reflecting on the conversation that we were going to have, there were themes that stood out to you of things that you wanted to make sure that people listening would take away things that you were either learning or thinking about that you wanted to share. And so I wanted to change my final question a little bit to open the floor to have you share those themes with us. You've put so much thought into it. I want to make sure that others get to benefit from what is it that as you thought about this, that you wanted to make sure people took away from hearing you speak. Okay, so we didn't get to all these little mantras that I have, but how about I just say them and then if they can be helpful to people, great. The first thing that I thought about was the idea of using rules to cut down on decision fatigue. And what I mean when I say that is we have to make so many decisions in a day, in our work life. If there are some rules you want to make for yourself that can cut down on how much time it takes to make a decision, perfect. So use rules to cut down on decision fatigue. Do you have a quick example that of one of your rules? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this will be totally, totally off what we've already talked about. But in terms of how to dress, Mm. so how you present yourself to the world, the presence that you come into a room with, there's all kinds of really good research (laughs) on how to think about your own presence. So whether you want to go towards Amy Cuddy's work on presence, amazing work, If you want to go towards Vanessa Friedman, so where Amy is an academic, Vanessa Friedman is the style. She's the fashion columnist for the New York Times. There's so many people out there who can give us some thoughts on how to think about our presence. Mm. Go think about how it is you want to be in the world. Do some good reading on it. Make some decisions for yourself. And then it cuts down on your decision fatigue. Yes. Um, you know, we could go across many domains of decision making. Presence is just one. Really great example is Amanda Gorman. You know, she gave the inaugural poem for mm. President Biden's address. She is the queen of presence. And I think she's been very intentional about how she wants to present herself in the world got all kinds of wonderful models so let's think about let's think about exploring those 
The second one I thought about is decide how you want to build your expertise. Mm-hmm. Used to be, you know, I came through an academic kind of way, as we've discussed. So many ways to build your expertise in the world. We're not limited. Um, we're also not limited in the same ways, you know, money to go to college and all that kind of stuff. There's so much great stuff online. And then the last thing I think that is a main mantra for me is to be flexible, but to trust your gut. Mm. Those last two of like, I think the, how you build your expertise, I think is just, again, challenging us to think differently about our education and then that being flexible, but trusting your gut. And I, you know, it's like, you can be flexible to a point is kind of what I hear, but like not when it starts to cross the line of your gut is saying one thing, your intuition, the voice is speaking to you, um, flexibility, you know, as long as it doesn't compromise that intuition is kind of what I'm hearing there. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, I just, Dr. Fran, thank you so much for being on and for sharing the work that you're doing, the experience that you had, even these, these kind of little nuggets of wisdom that you wanted to pass on. I just am so grateful to have had this time with you on Rising Tide. Hey, this has been wonderful for me. I just, how often do we get a chance to really think about who we are? and why we are who we are and what we might want to share. So just thank you for this opportunity, Margaret. Wonderful. I am so excited that you got to hear this episode. Thank you for tuning in. Dr. Fran is just incredible. I was continuously blown away by her humility, but also her wisdom And just the beauty of the work that she's doing. It was such a gift to have this time. And if I'm being honest, y'all, it was still super intimidating, even though she made it really easy to connect with her and talk to her. This was so outside my comfort zone of knowledge and experience. And I am so grateful for this podcast because one of the most important things is to provide exposure to new people new concepts, new industries. And so I hope this was both entertaining, but also incredibly helpful for you uh, in expanding your exposure as well. If you enjoyed this episode or you're loving Rising Tide, as always, please take a moment, give us a quick review. I would love to get that feedback from you. And just again, as always, I am so grateful to have you here, to have you part of this community and to continue rising together. Till next time.